Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Saxo Market Call podcast. Uh, my voice may be a blast uh, from the past <laughs> for some of you. Uh, you, uh, Peter Garnery, and myself, John Hardy, uh, former FX uh, strategist, here talking about the U.S. presidential election. Hooray! And uh, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on, and there are a heck of a lot of uncertainties. But I think uh, this early in the game, we're recording this in mid-February, it's all about getting our bearings on where are we at and what should we be looking at, especially this is a financial markets uh, podcast and a financial markets um, uh, discussion, what we should be looking at in financial markets and how the financial markets are trying to absorb the odds here and what is likely and, or, and to happen or not as we head towards November of, of this year and this election. So lay of the land right now, we have a Trump-Biden rematch. There seems to be a collective groan from, from many parts, the two of the most unpopular candidates. Um, and, 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 and the, yeah. the two oldest candidates, I two guess. Two oldest candidates ever. Uh, the you know, previous two oldest candidates were the previous election. Um, but, or at least in Biden's case, it was him. But, but of course, on, on Trump's side, you have a core of very, very heavy support. He's just very much disliked by, by the other side. And there's this sort of ambivalent uh, group that have, and largely independents that have sent him over the edge uh, back in 2017. And the unusual presence of a potential spoiler here, the most credible, at least in terms of popular support in the polls, third-party candidate or independent candidate, RFK Jr., uh, that we've seen since uh, early in the 90s when Perot uh, served as a kind of spoiler for, for that election when he got 18% of the popular vote despite a very erratic campaign uh, late in that uh, election season. So, um, yeah, here we are. And... Um, what are, what are we supposed to gauge from the odds? So the first thing you look at is where are we going to be with the economy? Uh, I think there was a saying during the uh, Clinton run in 92, the one he won against Perot, by the way, is uh, it's all about the economy, stupid, was a saying they had in their campaign, if I'm recalling the correctly, the uh, the saying there. And uh, that, that is often the case. If you have a really poorly performing economy, you should have an incumbent that's really in trouble. And, and Biden does seem to be in trouble on that account. Maybe less for GDP, but maybe more so on inflation? Well, we we actually looked into the equity market because the equity market is forward-looking and it's basically discounting all available information that we, we have in the aggregates of the people that are betting in financial markets. So it's a pretty good compass, I think, for, for a leading indicator on the economy. And what we what we saw in the data on the, election, the, you know, the 13 elections since 1972 is that when you have a weak equity market going into the election presidential election day, um, it often leads to a shift in the in the party that is controlling the White House. So, And that's a different proxy of saying it's about the economy, stupid. There have been a few cases where you have had a strong equity market, a strong economy going into the election day, and there was still a shift in the, who controlled the White House. But <clears throat> and, and we have few statistical data points on this, but, but I think as a hypothesis, I think it makes sense that if you have a strong economy, that it would be at least not a headwind. We can always debate whether how big a tailwind it is for the sitting president and the and the party controlling the Congress. But so it's it's definitely it's definitely not a headwind. But um, yeah, I think there's some nuances about how big a deal it is. Okay. Do you have do we have any predictions as a house really on where the economy is headed? We have a, this general feeling there was this uh, you know many people positioned 2023 as the year that the the recession that was supposed to happen did not happen. And now there's talk of uh, some sort of soft landing or no landing. Uh, you know, what is a landing? Uh, or are we in an outright recession, uh, recessionary environment eventually the, this year uh, instead? Certainly where markets are, they're hoping for this no landing, soft landing, Fed cutting, 
some sort of a very disinflationary, nice, uh, nice landing. Yes, we are, we are recording this on the, the 14th of February, so just the day after the January U.S. inflation report that showed inflation actually rose uh, or surprised to the upside. And I think it, it sort of underpins this story that the economy, and especially also if you look at the equity market, we are very close to all-time highs across all the broad indices. The market is definitely not pricing in a recession. The question is then... Is it going to be a soft landing, or are we, or are we talking about no landing at all? It's, it's just you know we reaccelerating. If you use the image of an of an airplane, and um, I think the inflation story tells you that there are a lot of thrust in the U.S. economy. If you look at the Dallas Fed weekly economic index, which is a sort of a weekly real time uh, estimator of uh, real GDP growth, we're close to uh, we are hovering around that two two point two percent real GDP growth. So that's basically trend growth. The labor market, so the number of job openings to relative to unemployed people in the economy, that ratio um, has actually um, has, has gained or increased over the past two data points, uh, suggesting the labor market is uh, is getting tighter. That was not the case, or that was not the idea with high interest rates. Um, we have services; the services sector is going fine. We have wages hovering around five and a half percent. So, I mean. I think the general gist is that the, the U.S. economy is definitely not slipping into a recession right now. And I think the likelihood of, of that happening before the election is quite low. Yeah. And so to hammer on the point about inflation, it is curious to see this this economy that, that sprang out, you know, came back out of the pandemic uh, so strongly, largely because of all the stimulus was also a very inflationary economy. So that dissatisfaction with Biden, often these things are on uh, are on uh, economic issues. It has to be on the inflation side. And I think it's a very great point because the inflation could be exactly that sort of hidden factor underneath the surface of a calm economy that is actually going that could spell trouble for Biden. Because I think the way the US system is set up relative to here in Europe, where we have a universal welfare state uh, that covers a lot, I think there is a less sensitivity to inflation in Europe because of the, the very big welfare state we have here in Europe. Whereas in the US, I think the lower... 50% of the income distribution is hit much harder in the U.S. from inflation. And a soothing point has been the very low energy prices. Yes, you, you and I, we talked about yesterday. I mean, we we're shaking our heads. I mean, the national gas price and gasoline prices are very low in the U.S. And that has been, I think, if, if that had not been the case with the current inflation and yeah, you also had had sure. high energy prices, I think uh, Biden would have been in, uh, in, in even bigger trouble than he is right now because, you know, the truth is, John, uh, I think that the polls are showing that, that Trump is leading, right, with a couple of points. Is it five or six points? Uh, yeah, but there's this huge undecided vote, and there's this odd presence of a third-party candidate, like uh, like I mentioned earlier. A very unusual profile. Uh, it's a left populist rather than a right populist. He's an anti-authoritarian, so so very different Trump than Trump on that aspect. Starting to share some of the – there's some overlap, uh, a bit more overlap, I would say, with, with, uh, with Trump on some issues – uh, like the border, like the geopolitical isolation uh, or sort of America first uh, attitude towards policy. We'll get more into that and the implications of which candidate wins on the geopolitical front, because that has massive financial market and specifically industrial sector implications around the world. But at the same time, a very sort of pro-environment. I, I think the last candidate to be called pro-environment will be Trump and uh, sort of anti with this establishment, anti-deep state, anti-authoritarian state uh approached on health insurance, on the environment, uh, et cetera. And fossil fuel support subsidies, things he's saying, we're, we're subsidizing too many corporations that don't need uh, subsidies. So it's a, it's a, there's some overlap with Biden, 
on some of these issues, traditional Democrat with a small D issues, and then there's some overlap on the populist side with Trump. So it's, it's, it seems he's taking more from Biden, but I'm not entirely sure who he's taking from. And he could be motivating also that it's quite clear he's most popular among young people, those that are less least likely on the margin to vote in past elections. So you're, you're sort of rocking a vote, quote unquote, that is really hard to rock. So it's, very, it's a very interesting uh, setup here. I have a question for you before we delve into some of the topics you just mentioned. Um, to me, it feels a little bit like, and I'll let you answer it, but it, it feels like that this election, one, it's super important. It's probably one of the most important elections in a, in a very long time. But but secondly, to me, it feels like whatever comes after the last period with either Biden or Trump, something new will uh, emerge, both for both parties. It's like sort of like... It's the end station, or the uh, the uh, sorry, the last station of whatever trend we're on. This uh, this massive battle inside the U.S. and and maybe it's a hope from my side. Or, or, or what do you think about that? Because when they, those two persons are gone, these parties will have to I, I don't know change their platform in some ways, right? And definitely at a, around a younger candidate. Yeah, but but is it parties or is it somehow? some sort of general partisanship that yeah. has developed, almost like a black and white, you're either this or, or you're that, you're mm-hmm. not something in between. And uh, and not to, to, to claim that I'm RFK Jr. supporter, but it's interesting to see how he's trying to thread the needle as being anti-establishment, but not really speaking out against uh, a Trump per se necessarily. Um, so, so is that, does he represent, even if he has very low chances of winning this election, is that where we're headed towards somebody that can somehow navigate this and people just get tired of the partisanship and we find a new sort of common ground to, to function as, as a country on. I, I don't know, but I agree with it. It feels like we're heading towards some kind of showdown or confrontation that either leads to some sort of uh, dramatic confrontation and, and even an aggravated and even worsening situation, or we can figure out how to move forward uh, mm. uh, more, more, more together as, as a country. I say we because I, I am, if you can hear from my accent, an American citizen, at least uh, at this point, I still am. Uh, yeah. So let's head to um, financial markets and the potential impact from this election. And as a as a preface to that, it's really important to point out, as always, that presidential election impact is not just about the presidency. It's about whether both the presidency and the two both houses of Congress really are all captured by the same party. Really critical. And it happened twice in the last uh, major cycle. So we had Trump dramatically winning the presidency and getting both houses in 2016 saw the massive supply-side uh, economic policies, huge uh, uh, cuts on taxes, especially corporate uh, taxes, a very big boon to the markets. We saw uh, longer interest rates jump, et cetera. And then his second half of his term was got bogged down in uh, less ability to do policy. And then the pandemic, which I think was chiefly the pandemic that derailed his chances in 2020 and his response to it. And then with Biden, turned out it wasn't the presidential election itself that was so impactful. Yes, he won but it was that last Georgia Senate seat where the runoff wasn't until January. And that seat going to the Democrats meant that he was able to pass all these other additional acts that have been uh, very dramatic on the fiscal side. (laughs) Inflation Reduction Act, a very ironically named policy, and a number of other initiatives that would not have happened had he not had that even that razor-thin control of of Congress. So we really have to watch. It has to be full-on. Both uh, all through uh, both houses of Congress and the presidency in one party to have the the full impact, and we'll look at what that impact looks like in a minute. But first, I think there is outside of that on the geopolitical scene, a presidency has tremendous leeway in terms of its 
relationship, uh, uh, the U.S.'s relationship with the rest of the world. And we kind of are getting used to Trump's style and his uh, stance on things, and really a lot of drama there for what it means for uh, for us here in Europe. I mean, uh, the, some of the recent statements about NATO, we know he has this very aggressive stance, and I, I think he, he tends to associate Europe with the uh, the forces that don't like him, and if there's something that does that you know gets under Trump's skin, it's somebody not liking him or not supporting him. So I think although there's a lot of focus on anti-China rhetoric, and we can talk about that as well, it means a heck of a lot for Europe in terms of security if he's pulling out of these these alliances that have been in effect since the end of World War II. Yeah. Where to start on on, on that? Yeah. Because because I think it's a it's a very convoluted uh, topic. Also because he has a certain style. I think in his own mind, and I think actually to some extent, I think or I do actually think uh, he he was right. He did talk about a very important topic, and people were shaking their heads and they were laughing of Trump back in the days when he talked about NATO and people, not, mm. the NATO countries in Europe, not spending enough, etc. But he actually proved to be quite right on this topic, and some European countries did actually move the needle on this. And um, then came the war in Ukraine, and and Europe still needs to move the needle even more. I mean, there's a very clear tendency that those countries that are the closest to Russia, the border of Russia, are the ones that are spending 2% or more, right? Poland has gone from 2% of uh, military spending of GDP to over 4%. They, they, they are like really... As I said to you earlier today, it's almost like a semi-war economy that Poland is running, and then you have Spain at the at the other spectrum, uh, only you know spending 1.2 percent uh, on military out of GDP. Um, I think there's a lit, there's a lot of uh, empty uh, empty uh, what's it called empty barrels uh, type of rhetoric from uh, um, from from Trump on on this threat against NATO because he's well aware of that in a in a potential conflict with with uh, with China. The U.S. could not go alone anyway, so there there is a need for the NATO alliance. I think he just wants to push Europe a lot, and I think actually, I know we in the headlines and the and the um, the mainstream commentaries here in Europe is like, oh, this is awful, and why would he say that? And 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 it is awful because either you have an article uh, article number five, you have the what's it called the musketeer uh, like idea, right? We we all together, mm. or you don't. Um, and and we do know that Putin is someone that, that is uh, is lying blatantly uh, in 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 you know in those last rounds of diplomatic efforts just before the invasion. So we can't trust Russia. Having said that, I actually think the positive spin for Europe is actually that Europe is this shy little kid in school that is unsure whether he can stand on his own leg. Um, and 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 Europe needs to grow an appearance and some self-esteem, and that it is a continent that is actually able to defend itself and get rid of this umbrella. And and I think I think I, I mean I think this potentially could be a, a huge catalyst for uh, for Germany um, to get rid of this very long shadow after World after World War II uh, that they have been in. So I, I think it can actually be be spun positively for Europe, but it's obviously it's a shock. But still, on the Trump versus Biden. Or versus RFK Jr. Anything that's not Biden is more clearly going to impact investors' attitude towards European defense, and therefore, I guess European defense stocks, which should be a, a quite a. And we've seen some pretty pretty powerful moves in some of these stocks recently. Yeah, I mean, if Trump wins the election, it's uh, it's um, it's a huge uh, green light for going uh, going more into European defense manufacturers. They've already done spectacularly well, much better than the U.S. And it's companies like uh, Leonardo in Italy, it's uh, Safran in France, it's uh, SAP in uh, in Sweden, it's Rheinmetall in in Germany. Some of these 
classic uh, defense industrial names, um, they will continue to do extremely well. Um, we just recently had the news that uh, Rheinmetall is massively expanding the, the largest uh, German NATO base in eastern Germany. Um, it's a huge complex they're building out there, and then they also uh, dug uh, into the ground for a completely new weapons uh, uh, manufacturing uh, factory in, in Germany. And they have the schematics and the plans to build that in record time. So there is a sense that the Germany is waking up. It's like it's been hibernating for so many decades, especially <laughs> under Merkel, right? And um, I think there is a sense of uh, urgency. So that that one is going to be positive. But if Trump wins, yes, it's positive for defense. But then he's also rattling the uh, rattling with this idea that that he would put on a lot of tariffs. Mm. And we are in this period as. Um, IMF recently coined uh, what was it? They called it globalization, right? So we were we were in this globalization period from 1980 until around 2014, where global trade just grew and grew and grew and grew. And then since 2014, so for 10 years now, global trade and percentages of overall volume or how you want to measure it has just been flat, actually slightly going down recently. And a Trump presidency could be a catalyst for more of that, more regionalization of the world. And and to be to be fair to to Trump and his influence on the matter, it's it's one of those issues where just like during the Cold War, you couldn't be anti-Soviet Union enough. Now you can't almost be anti-China enough in yeah. terms of policy. So we did see a co-opting of that policy by the Biden administration and this constant move to make sure that it's uh, you know securing chip manufacturing uh, to whatever degree it can, at least on U.S. soil, not being too reliant on Taiwan for that, trying to continue with uh, these policies against allowing China to buy uh, chips, which I'm sure it's getting around most of those uh, anyway. But, uh, I mean, something like a 60% tariff is what Trump is running around threatening, even if it's uh, you know, a third of that. Assuming they're not able to just simply avoid it with transshipments and so on, where should we be looking for that kind of impact? Or do you think there'll be a, a lot of impact or fear around that uh, before the election, or maybe we wait? We wait a bit. I don't know. I mean, I mean, if you think if you think that thought through, like sixty percent, I mean, it's almost like a declaration of war against uh, mm. China. And 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 to, I mean, and we must acknowledge the, that China plays a hugely important role in the global economy. They have a vertical integration of very key supply chains and a lot of very key technology arcs of the economy where if if Trump was to do that i mean china could could really deal uh, could you know get back with a with a punch in the stomach that it was that would really be felt in the US just like they did recently with the, with Europe uh, cutting down on on export of germanium and other very key uh, rare earth minerals to Europe which you know made Europe uh, got extremely scared because we have those resources in Europe, but they're extremely polluting. The so we don't, it's the refinery yeah, of those, yeah. and we don't have that refinery capacity, but now Europe is building it out because we figured out, okay, we have a national security issue because if we can't do industrial policies against China as they do against us without they, the, uh, China retaliating in a very aggressive way on key, uh, key minerals that we need for our industries, then we have a problem. So, but again, I think, it's for Trump. It's mostly rhetoric, but at the end of the day, I think it's an indication of his vector where he wants to go. He, I don't think he would go with sixty percent, but it's the vector we are going to do more against China. But here's the question, John, and I don't know what, what you think about that. But you know, China is obviously in a balance sheet recession. There's a lot of parallels with uh, with Japan back in the late 1980s. Um, they even have an extremely serious and frightening, in many ways, uh, demographic situation. So, 
you know, China is facing a lot of headwinds. I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure that 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 you need from a geopolitical perspective as a U.S. as a superpower. They really need to engage aggressively against China. I mean, I, I don't, but I don't know. It, it all depends, of course, of Taiwan. Yeah. I agree on that account, but I, I guess we can agree that the general direction is just a case of the intensive intensity of it is towards this ensuring that supply chains, key supply chains that, that drive your economy are secure domestically to whatever degree they can be, or at least friendshored, if not offshored. And that this separation, I, I can assure you that uh, under if there is a Trump presidency, this morning I was driving into work, I saw this uh, magnificent uh, SUV pass me up. Uh, on the back of it, it said Xpeng, you know, uh, Chinese manufacturer making high-end uh, vehicles. Very impressive, coming out of nowhere. I mean, what Chinese cars were on the street five years ago, there weren't any. Mm. Now they're the number one uh, car exporter in the world, but you won't see them on U.S. streets, would be my impression, no, or my, right. my, my strong belief. And I, and I think, actually, <clears throat> what would be most inflationary, a Biden presidency uh, or a Democratic uh, Congress, or would it be under, under Trump or a Republican Congress? And... I think actually you can you can make the proactive statement that maybe you'll get a higher inflation than what we want or what the market believes in 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 either case because in the case of Trump ripping apart more of these global supply chains and make more domestic manufacturing will be inflationary there are a lot of benefits from producing local uh, things from a national security perspective but it's just it just comes with a cost mm-hmm. like we talked about endlessly on this podcast before i mean it, it, it costs around 25 30 percent more to produce a solar panel in france than than in china so obviously it is inflationary and if and if it's biden i mean biden is more in uh, leans more into the mmt the very aggressive new keynesianism uh, fiscal policies um which could keep the fiscal deficit high Trump would do the same thing. He'll just do it from a supply side perspective, where he would cut the taxes on uh, in the economy. So eventually, you could get the same thing. It's just from a different angle, right? Okay, two more sectors briefly, and then I want to actually round up. Um, you mentioned MMT, and maybe remember, I'm, I need to mention the Fed here, and a little bit on the conspiracy theories on what the Fed is trying to support as we go into the election. But the um, energy. So obviously, Biden presidency more likely to support the the green agenda, the green transformation, whatever whatever it is you want to call it, and much less likely so on the Trump side. Is there anything you want to add to that? Um, no, not you know. I, I I just think that the reaction function would be pretty clear that if Biden was to win and or the Democrats would get a a, a, a stronger foothold in in the Congress, that that would be viewed by the market as something that is is positive. I mean. If you look at the renewable energy market, it's it's quite big in in China and Europe, and 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 the U.S. is is not leading in this area, in terms of market size, um, and that's something Biden has tried to change with his um, with his various uh, bills that came about uh, recently or like to the end of 2022. Um, so I think we would get more of that, and I think Trump has a more pro you know classic industrial uh, lean, and he would definitely be in favor of. Uh, of pro uh, oil and gas policies, I would imagine. So that that that's definitely something. And then, yeah, I don't know what the other sector was. Is that so, social media, and I yeah, think it's, it's yeah. such a huge one because I thought there was more potential for some kind of antitrust move against these huge platforms. We've seen a further intensification and concentration in the market. The S and P five hundred, or is the S and P you know, was it seven now that is driving most of the returns? And and it really hasn't happened. And and you make the point. You believe Trump would be more forceful against. Uh, uh, Silicon Valley against social media. I, I've just been surprised it's been allowed to trundle along for this long. There's been some antitrust efforts. They've been pretty feeble so far. There's not really much impact. No, 
they are, you know, what is what is it called? A regulatory capture, I think, is the the expression you use in the U.S. Mm. And I think that's very much the case. Um, I think the problem for Biden is that on the one hand, Democrats are not um, they. They, they're not shy of intervening with the economy and do a lot of regulation. Um, but when it comes to the technology, the technology sector, Silicon Valley is also a major donor of the Democratic Party. Uh, there's huge overlap there of political ideas. Um, I know there is a, there is a fraction or, or, or um, inside Silicon Valley around Peter Thiel and you know the whole uh, PayPal mafia, which is Elon Musk is part of, that is definitely more leaning on the Republican side. Um, I just think that some of the some of the experiences Donald Trump have, uh, has had with you know the way he he's treated by Meta and also with what happened in and at the Twitter now X which was taken over by Elon Musk and he basically reinstated Trump's account but he was so fed up I'm never going back on that social platform I want to be on True Social uh, something like yeah that. something True like social, that yeah, yeah Truth uh, Social platform. Um, I would not be surprised if he was to uh, to go after this industry one way or another. I, I firmly agree. Also because I think it's associated with many of his supporters, especially those of the socially conservative and religious persuasion that they're have a, have a, a social agenda that uh, they're very much at odds with and they would support that, uh, those moves. All right. It's, uh, we're getting on 25 minutes here. So I think we'll be wrapping it up. But the one thing I did want to mention is the fed conspiracy theories, the theory that uh, the fed is uh, part of the establishment is, you know, just cannot stand the thought of a Trump presidency and would lean very much on the dovish side in its policy mix uh, to support a, a Biden re-election. Uh, how on earth you quantify this, uh, I, I fail to see. But uh, we did have a supposed dovish pivot in December. The CPI report, as you mentioned, uh, this month uh, for January data, not supporting that. So we had a bit of a, a backup here in, in rates and in uh, away from the pricing in of Fed cuts. But there are three cuts that are priced still as of today in mid-February here before the election. Yeah. I mean, what, are you, what are you supposed to do with this, if anything? Uh, first of all, I would say you know, Jerome Powell, the, the Fed chair, was was elected or uh, appointed by, by Trump, right? So um, he can't claim at least that there is a person sitting there that, uh, that um, would be unfriendly to him per se if he wanted to take uh, the discussion about the Fed uh, in a political direction. But... As I said, I think there, there's something to this election. And the U.S. society is more politicized uh, um, than ever, right? Um, and I think the market was was really sure that they were going to move in March. And the market got the inflation dynamics completely wrong. And as you said, but still three rate cuts. But and Not the, starting until June, by the way. That third one would come right around election day. So it's, yeah. it's very little. I think it's 50-50 on, on, on May. But I think yeah. with the with the recent data point, I think that slowly will shift to, to June. There's so to me there's a sense of a window here, right? Because, I mean, it, I don't think it matters that much for the Fed unless there is a huge crack in the commercial real estate market that suddenly cracks open and and does a lot of havoc to the to the economy. I don't think it matters a lot to the Fed and 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 the future whether you go now or you wait three months. So as you get closer to the election, unless there's a really good case to cut rates, they could actually, they could hold it. They, I mean, the worst thing would be to cut it just before the uh, just before the election or get aggressive just before the election. I don't think they want to be called out as providing a helping hand to the sitting uh, president. So basically the ducks really need to line up in the inflation front yes. to, to get the, even to get that June cut, uh, which would establish a start. And then maybe could do, maybe they could just fit this schedule now, but it's going to be hard to out the current three cut projection unless there's, like you said, some some mishap. 
you can that, be, that encourages that gives them an excuse to go go further. Yeah, and you can yeah, and and and, may, and maybe even Donald Donald Trump is a little bit conflicted around it because I think his his fortune and his uh, uh, businesses. I think benefits from lower interest rates. So because he's in real you estate, you think or you know? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, so I think he would he would appreciate a lower interest rate just on his watch and not going into the election. Right. Because why would you give that to Biden? So if he can make a talk that makes this a political issue, then he maybe could threaten the the Fed to 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 stay uh, to stay put until the other side of the election, unless there are a clear need to go on the interest rates, which I think the commercial real estate at this point is the only real risk I see um, for, for the Fed in order to to move aggressively on the uh, on the policy rate. All right. I think we'll close it out there, Peter. Thanks so much for your thoughts. Uh, we're going to be building a U.S. election page on the Saxo platform, so Saxo clients can look forward to that. We'll update our views as uh, you know the election events uh, warrant, and so we'll be back with uh, future podcasts on the U.S. election cycle. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining today.